0: You're listening to The Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus, and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. Pleased to be back with you for another week here on The Bible Nerd Podcast. I certainly hope this finds you doing well, and looking forward to diving into our next couple verses here in the book of John. We're going to be looking at... Two kind of main themes today, both of which uh, have to do with the rejection of Jesus. The rejection of Jesus is a theme and a motif, of course, that is found all throughout the New Testament. And so, as you can imagine, as we look at the book of John, as we continue to go through the different chapters and the different ideas that John tracks upon, we're going to hit much more specific instances of this motif um, as we go throughout the book, okay? So I just want to maybe preface with that. Today's episode, uh, just for lack of time, uh, frankly, <laughs> this week um, is going to be maybe a little shorter uh, of one, and we're going to just talk about these concepts in in brief and in general because they are presented here in a very general Way and there are some other things I wanted to talk about uh, before we get to verse fourteen. So today we're going to cover verses ten and eleven, um, but uh, but but verse thirteen in itself is pretty significant, and I I, I didn't want to just kind of gloss over it today. I want to give it. Um, the amount of time that I think it, it deserves, and I think it is deserving of its own episode, so that's where we're going to go with that, all right? And so, we'll keep today a little bit shorter and just talk about some of these rejection motifs in general, and, um, you know, kind of understand the logic of, of the passage here. So, One of the things, too, before we we get much further, I want to kind of give you a preview of a little discussion that we're going to have once we get to verse number 14. And it has to do with some things we've already talked about here in the book of John, but it's also going to relate to a question that my friend Tim um, asked me in a conversation that we have been having over email as it relates to the possibility that Jesus could be the creator now if you remember a few weeks ago we actually did an episode on Jesus as creator and I made the distinction in that episode between the word the logos and Jesus Christ and what we're going to find out and there's a lot to this but what we're going to find out of course when we get to verse 14 is that the word was made flesh okay whatever the word is the word was made flesh And that happened in Jesus, okay? But again, it it says the Word was, was made flesh. The Word has not always been flesh. So I just want you to maybe ponder on that question of how could Jesus be the creator, okay? The New Testament seems you know, willing to, to say that it is Jesus, it draws pretty explicit connections, who was the creator. But we also have to think carefully about that and look at where the New Testament says, okay, that it was the Word that was the creator, and then the Word became flesh in Jesus. So how do we make sense of, of all of that? Is there something more that can be said about that discussion and I think there is I think there's a little bit more nuance we could bring to it and a good conversation we could have about that we're not going to get too much into that this week um or maybe even next week although we might a little bit next week but we're definitely going to have a bit of that discussion when we get to verse number 14 so that's coming if that's a question that you have um you know, or maybe something that you've never thought about before, or you're thinking about it now, uh, just as a result of my bringing it up, don't worry, we are going to go there. We're going to get there and have that conversation. For today, the two main things I want to look at are just kind of understanding the language of verse number 10, and then also a look at the rejection of Christ, both as the creator and as the Messiah. Okay, Both of those things are in view in these couple of verses here in John. And something that I think is really significant is most know that when you look at the Gospels, each of the Gospel writers sort of approached the idea of the identity of Jesus from a particular kind of perspective. And... For John, he really focuses in on this idea of Jesus as divine, of Jesus as God. And in fact, that is one of the uh, issues of apologetics that sometimes we deal with when it comes to the gospel of John. There is almost this um, uh, narrative that has been (laughs) crafted in the mind of some skeptics that Essentially, there is a progressive um, Christological development going on where, where Jesus in early texts is not treated as divine. And then once you get to some of the later texts, like the book of John, you now have this fully developed Christology. And so it's sort of this evolutionary um, view of Christology. And that can be debunked by showing, um, uh, Christological, um, themes in earlier books and so we're not going to go through all that material today but do know that that is an issue that's something that comes up that's a a discussion that people are going to have and a question that people are going to have and so it's important that we know and we understand that there was not this development of God as um, of Christ that has always been the theology of Jesus as being God okay that is New Testament theology at its core, and there's even really good precedent in ancient Judaism for this idea of a, a second essentially Yahweh figure, and uh, there are a couple passages where it gets really interesting where you can maybe even make a case for a third, for, for uh, the existence of a sort of Holy Spirit um, as we have uh, presented to us in the New Testament. You can actually go back and see that sort of thing in the Old Testament as well. So, just some very interesting stuff, I think, that surrounds this book. And so, the idea of rejection coming in here is really important and significant because of the themes of divinity, of Christ as being God, one with and equal with the Father. Uh, that we see in the book of John. So as we dive into this, first we're going to see here the rejected creator. Okay, the rejected creator. And so we're looking at verse number 10. I'm just going to go ahead and read verses 10 and 11 as we go ahead and dive in here. That way we have plenty of context for where we are in the in the chapter okay so again we have this discussion in verses one through nine about the word the logos um he was with god in the beginning nothing was made without him Um, in him was life and the life was the light of men and then of course we saw the light shineth in the darkness and we looked at darkness and light in the uh in the old testament and a little bit in the ancient near east which is which is interesting and um we same we, we saw that john came to bear witness of that light and that he wasn't the light um, but that Jesus was the true light, and we tied some connections in with Romans 1, saying, you know, this is kind of Romans 1 language that um, everyone um, who comes into the world uh, knows Christ. And, and so that's actually something that's really, really interesting and in consideration once we get to verse number 10. So I'm going to go ahead and read that for you, as well as verse number 11, and then we'll dive in. So uh, it says this, he was in the world. And the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 12 as well. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So we'll have more to say about verse number 12 uh, next week. But for today... Verses number 10 and 11 will give us plenty to talk about right he was in the world and the world was made by him And the world knew him not now one reason why this is really interesting Is because if you look at the logic so far and we backtrack to verse 9 a little bit We see that jesus was the true light which lighteth every man That cometh into the world. So How is it that he lights every man? that comes into the world, but then in the very next verse, even though he was in the world, and in fact the world was made by him, actually the world knew him not. Some other interesting things here, um, as we consider this, are different uses of the word uh, world. Okay, it's very important, Um, and I I use, again, I'll mention this here, I use um, Logos Bible software, and it's really great software because you can really dig into the languages, even if you are not necessarily a student of of Greek or Hebrew, there are tools that you can get that will allow you to kind of see um, the context of different words and how they are used. So you can actually look at the sense of a word in a particular passage uh, versus in another passage. Um, And and world is just one of those interesting terms that John uses a bunch. I think it's close to 80 times that he uses the word. And um, sometimes it's going to refer to the actual created order, the actual uh, created world. And then sometimes it refers to those who stand in opposition to God. And we see a kind of double use thing going on here that's pretty interesting. Another thing about this is the word no, the word no. This is an interesting word in the Bible when we look at it because if we always define the word, and sometimes it does mean this, but if we always define the word in the sense of general awareness, that's how we think of it, right? Many times in our English usage of the word, we think of the word no as general awareness and that's not so much what's going on um here it's more of an experiential knowledge and a lot of times actually in the bible that's what's happening is is where we're talking about the word no this is the greek word ginosko and it's talking about an experiential relationship or knowledge Of the Lord Jesus. And certainly in the context here, I think we have something more in line with that. So we're going to use uh, Andrew Lincoln here again to comment on some of these things and actually tie all of these ideas that we have discussed together in a very nice and I think very, very helpful summary. So He comments on these items uh, as follows, quote, when the prologue now begins to deal with what in practice has been the human response to the light, the assessment of the response to humanity as a whole is not a positive one. All people may indeed be dependent on the light, just as they live only through the creative word of God. But the world that ought to have recognized the light by which alone it survives does not do so. He was in the world is not a reference to the presence of the light slash word in Israel's previous history, as is argued by some, but anticipates the presence of the incarnate word. The broader meeting may have been in view in an earlier form of the material, but as the prologue now stands, the prior reference to John in verses 6 through 8 and the continuation continuation of the thought in verse 12 make clear that the mission of the incarnate Logos is already the focus, although the incarnation will not be explicitly mentioned until verse 14. The massive irony is that the world came into being through him. And the world did not know him. The term world is another characteristically um, Johannine term and occurs 80 times in the gospel. It is employed with two different nuances in this very verse. In the first two instances, the reference is to the created world, the world that constitutes humanity's environment and that includes humanity itself. In the third instance, the world did not know him, the references to the world of humanity that, by its response, reveals its devastating plight of having become alienated from and hostile to the light slash word that sustains it. It is the second negative connotation of world that will become dominant in the fourth gospel. Close quote. So, what we glean there from Lincoln's um. Summary is that, especially as it relates to the idea of the world knowing Him and this this recognition of Christ, is that this really spells an explicit rejection of Him. The fact that the world knew them not, Um, and it's it really is sad. It really is a shame. And um, again, kind of goes back to our Romans one sort of thinking, right? That. Uh, what it, i mean it is the ultimate uh sort of intellectual suicide um, to disbelieve in one's creator okay like can, can you think of of anything more just tragic than that right than than uh you y- you know the clay arguing with the potter over whether or not he truly is um is the potter and so this is where there's that delicate balance, really, that needs to be struck between, well, how do we graciously interact with people in in the world, even though we believe that they are terribly wrong about things that really do matter? And, you know, without diving a whole cloth here into uh, politics and all these other things, it's so important to realize that everything about your worldview is derived from this. You know, I I, I I chuckle, but I'm also saddened when I have conversations with uh, folks who do not believe in God, and they are adamant in many cases that their rejection of God, their disbelief in God, does not affect how they live in the world, how they live in their life. Uh, they're fairly convinced that they would be the same exact person, kind of person. They would hold the same values, the same ideals, etc if they did believe in God versus if they didn't. And, you know, I suppose in in, in some cases that that could be true, but I think at the vast majority of things uh, that people believe, especially as they relate to worldview, that would not truly be the case, right? It would not be the case that your ideas about things would not change if you were truly a believer in God, because truly being a believer in God and a believer in the the biblical God specifically, and then in, in his revelation to mankind entails a rejection of many ideas that um, are wholly embraced by those who have no belief in God. And again, there are those rare exceptions, but so we have to kind of have this delicate balance here between realizing that people Um, I think a lot of people generally do try to be good and they they want to have good, you know, they they believe they have good intentions and they have good thoughts about things, but they are uh, misguided with respect to their execution of them, certainly. And we we want to honor uh, that uh, in some sense. I mean, we realize that uh, the rain pours on the just and the unjust. There is this uh, measure of common grace. We realize that there is a moral law implanted on the hearts of all humanity, right? That's Romans 2, 14, and 15 material. And so we realize that there is going to be some inclination to do uh, things that are in line with the true nature of humanity, um, or or the true intended purpose of, of humanity, um, but they're going to terribly fall short, as we do every single day, um, but the fact remains that we have such a different worldview from them, and somehow we have to negotiate that, live in the world with them, but not be of their ideas, and make a distinction between ideas and, uh, the people who hold them, and that's a really tough thing to do, it just is, and I was actually having a conversation, I can't go into the details, but I was having a conversation with my wife about this the other day, um, about, you know, just, I, I really wish that people would, um, be able to think well and separate um, the rejection of the ideas they hold from rejection of them as a person or rejection of, of, of people that they love as, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like it's just really tough um, because practically we have to navigate those things and actually deal with them. Um, and what we find in this um, scripture is that tension. We find that um, although the, World was created by him and although that light um, lights the entire world uh, we know also that many will not experientially know him because they will reject they will reject their very creator now John uh, later in his third letter actually makes a very practical point based on some of this material here um, and, uh, he says this, behold, what manner of love the father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. And this is another thing that's really, um, fascinating. It's really joyful, but it's also really sad. It's the very belief, the very embracing and acceptance of, 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 of Jesus and of Yahweh that allows us the ability and the power or or the right. Some different translations have it uh, to become the sons of God. And we're going to talk about that. Trust me next week. We are going to have a a great discussion about that. I'm excited uh, to talk about that with you. Um, But that's the logic, right? Where John sort of ties all these ideas together. It's an act of, of love that we get to become a son of God but the sad reality is that the world isn't going to know us. They're not going to be able to experientially know in that really deep sense, right? They're not going to be able to know us because they don't know him. And that's the disconnect. That's the disconnect. And that disconnect leads right in to our second point of not only the rejected creator, but but now we also see the rejected Savior. So the rejection motif here in John 1 moves to a very, very specific point now. And there is much that could be said about this, uh, even beyond what we're going to discuss today. But again, um, it, it's more of a of a general kind of setting up of, of the theology here. It's a a, a a telegraphing, if you will, of the theology here uh, that we're going to actually see going on in different places throughout the book. So we'll uh, again, we'll kind of look at the specific situations, and in some of those specific situations, you get uh, references back to um, Old Testament um prophecies and beliefs regarding a messiah so we're going to talk about those things and i think it's going to be really interesting but we'll just set it up really really briefly today and kind of whet your appetite a little bit so um jesus's own when it when it says that okay so it says um his he came into his own and his own received him not that is referring of course to the jewish people um Jesus was a Jew. Uh, the The, the uh, New Testament is a book uh, written by Jews. And, you know, um, this is one of those really, really interesting things. I mentioned this in the first uh, episode. I think it was the first episode that we did in this John series here. But people tend to think about the New Testament in this really dichotomous way, especially us here in the West, we don't think about it as a Jewish document, or, or rather, a Jewish um, a set of documents. Okay, uh, but it really, really is. Um, there is uh, tons of stuff in the New Testament that it, it is is just. Uh, well, I mean, Jewish theology and tra- traditional, you know, Hebrew belief is essential, really, to understanding what the New Testament authors are getting at, and so you have to. Um, have that backdrop and you have to allow that to heavily influence your thinking so Jesus was a Jew he came unto his own people again it's very clear if you just read the gospels it's very clear that his mission is to the Jews uh, first um, and that is what his uh, you know he, he came to do was was to to fulfill that role as the Jewish Messiah and of course we know they rejected him and uh, the offer of salvation was opened up into the entire world and uh, we know that the mystery of God is that the Gentiles get to take part and become God's people become. Sons of God, and um, and that's the the you know the story of the Bible, right? Um, now, such a rejection though of of Jews again was kind of necessary to this plan taking place the way it did, and it was prophesied. So this was not some sort of mystery, right? Um, Jews um, were warned essentially uh, albeit in some cases very cryptically but they were warned that there was going to be a messiah figure and the messiah figure was going to be rejected and then that was going to feed into god's larger plan okay so the uh, rejection takes place we, we we'll just look at a couple different verses here that kind of talk about that before we close out for this episode so psalm 118 22 now this is a huge one and um Admittedly, it's a little bit confusing. Okay, so here's what the verse says: Psalm one eighteen twenty two. It says, "The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner." Now I don't know about you, but there are um, uh, when I when I read the scripture, you know, my my first inclination is sort of to to take it very very literally. And don't get me wrong, uh, I uh, want to read the Bible as naturally as possible. I, I want to when I look at it, I want to you know um, I, I want to see ideas that uh, comport with the very first images that come to my mind, but. That would be mistaken in some cases. Okay, we, we, we what we really need to do is think about the heavy uh, typology and metaphor that we use even in our own communication. <laughs> it's really interesting. Um, metaphor is something I think you really need to look into. There's a book um Oh golly, I can't remember the name of it right off, but it's a it's a um uh, it's a it's a it's a book that deals with this idea of of life as metaphor. Like so much of what we do is bathed in metaphor that we don't even realize it. And so when we're consciously aware of what we're reading, right? And we come to the scriptures, often we disregard any reading that would head in that direction in the name of taking a literal approach to a text, and I, you know, again, I mean, I, I do, I, I, I take a literal approach to a text, um, but literal language includes figures of speech, metaphor, simile, and things of that nature, and it would be a mistake to disregard those things or to treat them as some sort of secondary, um, like, oh, well, there's no um, obvious literal way to take this passage, so we're going to take it another way. Um, I, I think maybe I used to think more along those lines, but I think less along those lines now. Um, or at least I should say that when I when I come to the text, I approach it with more skepticism than that, because I have learned as I've studied scripture how um, h- how much more often this sort of thing is happening than I used to think it did. OK. And so this is one of those ideas where when I when I read that, there, there's an idea that kind of comes into my head of like a um, y- y- uh, of a building being built with bricks and such. And, and I'm sure that is, um, you know, th- that is part of the imagery, but there's more going on here than that. And, and virtually every scholar that I read, uh, agreed, uh, that there is more going on here than just that. And so I am going to uh, refer to the work of, um, Alec Mutir. He is a wonderful scholar known for his work, uh, primarily on, um, Isaiah, but he does a lot, uh, in the old Testament and he is a uh, excellent resource. So, I Want to read uh, this lengthy quote from him that will kind of explain a little bit more context about what's going on here, the nature of the rejection, how Jesus applied it, and uh, how that uh, is instructive for us. Okay, quote The temple priests hail the incoming individual as the stone, and those accompanying him respond. Verses 22 and 23. The priests acclaim the day of his arrival, and the group pray to experience the blessings of the day. Verses twenty four and twenty five, the priests pronounce blessing on the individual and the group. Uh, that's verse twenty six, you plural, and the group responds. The priests invite them to the feast. Twenty seven, and in the individual twenty eight, and the group twenty nine, join in worship. The stone is a messianic symbol. In Matthew twenty one forty two through forty four, Jesus links verse twenty six with Isaiah eight fourteen. In its original setting in the psalm, this may be a proverbial saying describing a notable reversal of human opinion. Who would have thought that the slave people were the chosen people, the key to human history and destiny? Or if the psalm is some ritual portrayal of the defeat of the Davidic king before the nations and his subsequent resurrection by the intervention of the Lord— Who would have thought that the one um, so humbled would turn out to be the acme of divine purposes? But how very far the reality in Jesus outshines all such preliminary fulfillments. Was any other ever so scornfully rejected by the great ones of church and state? Was any other so humiliated, so crushed under the weight of international opposition? Any other actually brought down into the dust of death? any other given the highest place that heaven affords far above all principalities and powers and every name that is named. And who could have done this, but the Lord himself. He references there Isaiah 53, 10 acts two twenty three, 23 and um, Philippians two, nine through 11 close quote. So we see here that there's a lot more going on to this idea of the stone um motif and Jesus latching on to that. And um, again, it's this idea that the one, the divine one, the one who's being sent uh, to these people as their rescuer, uh, they just missed it. They They just totally, they just totally, totally missed it. They were so worried about that immediate fulfillment, the way that they were thinking about that, that they weren't ready for what that was going to be portraying about their Messiah, and again, I think it's really important to understand that hindsight is twenty twenty here. Like we, 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 um, we give the Jews a hard time for not recognizing uh, the Messiah and, um, for you, you know just rejecting him outright. But we need to be very careful here and, and realize that it's it's easy for us to to look at this and see the whole revealed corpus of scripture and say, "Oh, like it was so obvious." But in many cases, for them, it just wasn't that obvious. And, uh, in some cases, I think you can actually make the argument that it is intentionally cryptic. You know, Paul talks about this, that if the, uh, if the powers of the world, right, if they had known, uh, about this plan, essentially they would never have crucified the Lord of glory, the powers of darkness. The plan, um, all along has been to deceive them or to, um, to, to I guess, to, um, distract them away from the ultimate fulfillment of uh, god's plan right um they you know the forces of evil the powers uh of evil they know that they cannot ultimately defeat god but what they can do is work hard to delay the inevitable and i think that is what we often see them uh, doing. And so when you have rejection of Jesus and complete opposition to a biblical worldview, complete opposition to Jesus, um, we see that there is a, uh, yes, of course, a theological thing going on here, but they have influence over the world. They have influence over political powers in the world. Now, To what extent? Well, I don't know. Um, but probably to, probably to a much worse extent than I would really care to think about. And and so this uh, rejection, this Jewish rejection of Jesus, of course, you know, bleeds over. There's rejection of Jesus that goes out into the entire world. Um, and some who just, uh, d- I mean, it, it, it It's in various flavors, right? Some don't even believe that there was a real Jesus of history, right? They don't believe that he was the person that the Bible says he is. Some don't believe he ever existed at all and that the entire thing is just a myth, right? And you see these things and, and we have to evaluate those ideas and most of them, fortunately, uh, have been evaluated at this point. There's really nothing new under the sun. Um, but so many of them have been evaluated and found wanting. In the biblical picture of Jesus as the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the entire world, is is has a sure foundation in history. Has a sure foundation in truth. And the teachings of Jesus ultimately are forever cemented on the hearts of those, even who never hear about his his name and this is again why that the uh, biblical writers could so adamantly declare that the problem is not that you don't have enough evidence the problem is is, is not that you haven't heard the problem is you ultimately have a a, a deep sense of your Created nature, and you ultimately deny it, and you ultimately reject it, and so that rejection of of Jesus, both uh, internally, in in the sense of your 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 you know your re- rejection of him as as your creator, as your maker, and then your rejection of him as your save as your savior, is sort of this this double rejection, um, and it, it stems from that internal, you know, again moral, uh, really thinking that you have ideas that are better than god and such the like and it just doesn't work that way now something that's really really <laughs> i think cool uh, there's an illustration it's one of those kind of preacher illustrations you know you can go online and look up these illustrations and um and it's actually a really cool illustration but in a sense it's it's poignant because this passage actually describes basically the reverse uh, of of what the illustration intends to prove and so the illustration without like actually giving it to you i'm just going to kind of explain it is called mind twice and the idea of this illustration is you have a this boy who builds a boat and he, uh, he, 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 builds a boat and sends the boat down the river. Uh, it's a little toy boat and, um, he loses the boat. Okay. And so he made the boat of course. And so he loses the boat. And then years later he goes, he, he finds a, a shop and, um, he see, I don't know if it's a pawn shop or something like that. Uh, but, uh, he finds a shop and in it he sees his boat that he lost that day. He buys the boat, redeems the boat, so to speak. and. The story ends, you know, with the saying "Your mind twice, once because I made you, and a second time because I bought you," and so that is a, a very, I, I think, apt illustration for the kind of thing that happens. Um, our creator made us and so he's ours because of that but then he's ours again because he bought us he redeemed us but now in in this in 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 john here we see the rejection of that idea we see the rejection of jesus as creator and then the rejection of um him as savior and so here here we have humanity essentially sawing off the limb of the tree that they are sitting on they are sitting in god's lap all while slapping him Uh, in the face and that's the sad truth that's the sad reality of it and i hate to end on that note but i do want to remind you that next week what we're going to be talking about is actually the reversal of it in in um Verses 12 and 13, we're going to see this idea of, of belief and acceptance of Jesus, and we're going to talk a little bit about the idea of um, this receive-believe language that's going on there, and then also what it means to become a son of God. So we're going to talk about the reward for acceptance of this very message that so many others have denied, including Jesus' own people. Well, that's all I have for you this week and I just want to again thank you for being a listener to the Bible Nerd Podcast if you enjoy this podcast and you think that it's helpful and uh, the the materials that we research each and every week to, to bring to you and, and, and teach then I would encourage you to tell somebody else about it one easy way to do that is you can actually screenshot take a screenshot of your screen whatever your podcast player is and share that and uh, tag me in it if you want to Steve Schram uh, SW Shram is where I'm at on most social platforms you can tag me in it or, or do a hack hashtag Hashtag Bible nerd or whatever you'd like to do, but you can just share that and tell other people that you found the podcast helpful and that you enjoy it and you think that they would as well. Finally, before we sign off, I want to remind you that I'm still offering a free book. You can actually go to steveshram.com. Slash book and get my uh, get your free copy of the book I wrote called God the Great Commission and You and this book will help you to be more confident when you're witnessing when you're sharing Christ with others it really teaches you um, about what the Bible says about the Great Commission and the different roles that you can choose to have me as a uh, introvert. I am somebody who is going to approach the sharing of Christ with others in a way that's very different from even how I was uh, taught uh, that it had to be done growing up. I think there's not one right way to do it. I think there are multiple ways to do it, and there is a way to do it that fits within your personality style, whatever that may be. So uh, I would just invite you and encourage you to uh, check that book out. Again, steveshram.com book is how you can get a free copy. All I ask is that you pay a very, very small fee for shipping and handling, and we'll get that book out to you as soon as possible. God bless you. Thank you for joining us, and I can't wait to talk to you again next week.